Yeah, she'll teach you how to be artistically you. Not afraid to talk about what's taboo. So don't play small. Join the podcast with Nikki Collins. Autism Unmasked. Hello and welcome to today's show. Today I am joined by Dr. Spriya Modi all the way over from... America on the East Coast in Maryland. And Spria has an amazing background in dental surgery, a healthcare professional. She's currently pivoting careers. And as a late diagnosed autistic woman, she has a story to share. And it's a pleasure to have you with us today. So welcome to the show, Spria. Thank you so much, Nikki. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to, to be speaking to you. It's uh, it's great. You've had a really interesting kind of journey. It it has been very interesting, and I, I can't help but be very grateful as I reflect on my entire journey. You are a late-diagnosed autistic woman. You gained your diagnosis quite recently, actually, only in March of 2021. That's right. Year. So what led you into seeking a diagnosis? Um, I think it began with the pandemic. And as the pandemic began, I started to notice a few um, unraveling symptoms in myself. And after a long six to eight months of dealing with those symptoms, not knowing what they were, um, and given my, you know, steep background in healthcare, Um, I was forced to confront the fact that what I was dealing with was most likely autistic burnout. And the only way to know that would be to ascertain if I am on the spectrum after all. And that's what led me to seek out a diagnosis. Um, This was in Feb, March of 2021. I reached out to an adult Asperger's and autism expert. And after we had a series of um, tests, conversations, um, and multiple sessions, multiple background histories, that's when we were able to find out and I got a confirmed diagnosis of being what they call uh, high-functioning autism or Asperger's syndrome. Yeah. Um, So that's how I, I found out. Okay. What do you think about the functioning labels aspect of of that diagnosis? Um, I think we really need to move away from using terms like high functioning and low functioning. That said, I think the current landscape we live in makes it really hard to radically move the needle in that aspect. And so in my own personal story, I believe that when I've mentioned the label of high functioning, it helps to some extent, but at the same time, it discounts the need for support that high functioning individuals often require. Mm. At the same time, I think it's, um, and, and this is something that I feel very strongly about. I think very often when people hear the term high functioning, they assume it's a good thing. Uh, And it might be in some contexts, but I think what follows is an unfair comparison with low-functioning individuals. I think that does more harm than good. 
And so I think one by one, slowly, we need to move away from this label. I don't know that um, the current society we live in is ready for a radical change, but I definitely think that's the direction we need to move in. I completely agree. I feel that functioning labels are more about how other people experience your autism rather than how you, the autistic person, experiences it. And absolutely, that's wrong. It's wrong. And it's um, it's very myopic because. Again, as I said, it does more harm because it, it pretty much discounts the autistic experience. It absolutely does. And I don't think people take into consideration that if you're having a a bad day, so say you've hit burnout and you are now low functioning because you can't do the things that you'd normally do. So things are simple. And I say that in kind of like simple things turn into the hardest things, most impossible. Just being able to get washed and dressed and feed yourself become these mammoth tasks. That's right. I think the idea of these functioning labels, when when they originated, were supposed to be a way to identify which individuals need what kind of or how much support. Mm. That said, I think slowly it has devolved into a societal judgment, if you will, yeah. that, oh, you're high functioning, oh, you're low functioning. Um, so I think that we definitely need to move away from those kinds of labels. Absolutely. I mean, it has been said that the medical professionals who are assigning them aren't meant to be assigning them now. But as you say, society is never ready for radical change, not not with just specific to autism, just in general. It's always change seems so slow to gain that momentum and for people to catch on and I think the more conversations that are had in the public domain about it the better absolutely and I I think that taking these small steps towards meaningful change makes it more sustainable Mm -hmm. and this is definitely a change that we want in a sustained manner as opposed to a temporary radical shift that just goes right back to square one eventually. Exactly, exactly. So how has life changed for you since you gained that knowledge, that that label of autism? Um, for, For a fair amount of time, my experience was very atypical because it was influenced heavily by my autistic burnout. And this burnout was very different from a professional burnout um, or an episodic burnout that is also something that um, neurodivergent individuals tend to experience. Hmm. And so I found that I was losing a lot of my executive functioning skills. I was noticing that my ability to interact with other individuals was um, reduced. Yeah. And it took a lot of and, and I come back to this because I don't believe there are adequate resources for a late diagnosed individual, for an individual who's experiencing a massive autistic burnout, um, for women, for that matter. And I think that I had to indulge in a lot of self-education, self-coaching, 
And doing that consistently for a period of time is what helped come out of, you know, that kind of a intense autistic burnout. Yeah. That said, I think it was also a good um, moment to reflect and to ensure that the coping strategies I have in place are more suited for what I need as opposed to what I have learned that I should need. And I think that was um, a huge point of growth for me personally. Um, I also noticed that it did affect my relationships with um, pretty much everyone in my life. Um, Some of them, some relationships just needed time for this new information to sink in. And so some relationships have evolved for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that as I went through this experience and now in retrospect, I think it was very frightening and it was very lonely. So if I hadn't been, you know, an Aspie who had spent about a decade in healthcare, and so I consume, um, you know, medical information like no one you'd have known before. Mm. If it wasn't for those things, I wouldn't have been able to make it out of burnout because that's how bad it it had gotten. And I didn't have the resources um, to seek external help with those specific needs. Uh, The diagnosis was as far as I could get in terms of external resources. Um, And again, we were in the middle of a pandemic a lot of hospital systems weren't taking in new patients. So a lot of autism clinics weren't taking in new adult late diagnosed patients. And so the odds were not stacked in my favor. That said, I think it's all for the best because these experiences have now shaped me. They have made me more resilient. And as we you know, spent all of this time dealing with so many other external crises. This was a personal crisis that I was also dealing with simultaneously. Mm. And the growth that comes from it, the empowerment you feel from having navigated this kind of a, a challenging uh, personal situation um, is unparalleled. Totally. So when I think back, I'm I'm really grateful. And I'm also very grateful to you know, a select few individuals who have stuck through me through this experience, even if they haven't always known how best to support, but they've still been there. And so I think that um, I don't know that I I would have um, survived this ordeal without all of these little pieces just being there. Yeah, it's certainly it's such a massive learning curve. And I know so many women who go through their life and the pressures of life build and build and build because we have more and more responsibilities because mm-hmm. that's what happens. And they end up having a what looks like a mental breakdown. So they end up in being hospitalized. And that's the completely wrong environment when you're suffering with autistic burnout because Absolutely it's not true. it's nothing to do with mental health 
you need that rest. You need that understanding and that compassion for yourself and from those around you, which it sounds like you had. You had that good network. And the network doesn't need to be big. It just needs to be made up of a select few people who really have your best interests at heart and can help to support you through these really turbulent times. And you do come out as a warrior once you've finished, once you come out. And I mean, it's always a journey. Life is a journey. But when you come out, you've realized, you've processed, you've done some digging and got your information, you start to process and put these things and these systems into place that's when life can start to really skyrocket and you start to live again rather than just tread water. Absolutely. So you had a career, as you said earlier, in healthcare, you're a healthcare professional, Mm -hmm. and you started in uh, dentistry. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, This was back in India. I, I started dental school back in 2008 in India and, um, I loved what I was doing. I spent every waking moment in the surgical ICU, in the emergency wards. Um, maxillofacial surgery was my um, ultimate goal within dentistry. And mm-hmm. that's what I was slowly but steadily working towards. Um, I then moved in 2014 to Los Angeles. I pursued restorative dentistry and surgical implant dentistry at the UCLA School of Dentistry. And it was a fantastic ride while it lasted. Uh, And I say that because I did develop a bilateral wrist condition um, that eventually, you know, led to me reassessing my career path. I no longer felt comfortable hedging my bets on a career that solely depended on my wrists. And I decided to make this pivot sooner rather than later. I'd always thought that going the MBA route is something that would happen, but it would happen much later in my career. Um, But given what I was dealing with, I decided to make that pivot sooner. Hmm. And I haven't looked back since. Um, Now, when I think back, uh, knowing what I know now, I realized that that kind of a massive transition for an autistic individual can be way more intense than for someone who's not on the spectrum. Yeah. And um, so if, if I could say something to my younger self who is attempting to make that transition, I'd remind her how proud I am of her because this was not easy, but it was definitely worth it. Good for you. What kept you going? What was your motivation to continue? I think it goes back to the environment I grew up in. And I I mean, my home environment. Um, I think I, so when I found out that I'm on the spectrum, while it answered a few questions, given the autistic burnout that I was dealing with, it didn't come as a surprise to me. Um, It was like I, I always knew though I may not have had the right term for it. Mm. And so when I think back to my upbringing, my home environment, I think my unique qualities were always encouraged. And I think that gave me a sense of being very comfortable in my skin, regardless of any external challenges that I may have to face. 
So when I was navigating a career transition, um, no doubt it came with its own share of challenges. Um, For a while, I was an anxious wreck of a person. Um, but that said, I think it's it's um, being comfortable in my skin, knowing that even if I am navigating a, a non-traditional path, that things would be okay. And just knowing that regardless of how the world might view me, it's my view of myself that matters most. And I had a really strong view of myself. I had a very um, encouraging view. And I think delving into some of those personal qualities is what kept me going. And I, frankly, it's what still keeps me going because uh, it's not that the challenges have ended. And frankly, I think uh, life comes with change and different kinds of challenges. And it has nothing to do with being on the spectrum that's just how life is totally um, and i and, and and i'm very happy that that is the one thing that i am very comfortable with navigating fantastic as you say life is unpredictable you just don't know what's around the corner you can decide that this is where you want to be and this is where you are now and have no idea of how to get there or you can have all like the clarity in the world and this perfect vision and this step-by-step plan and then there's a big boulder in the way and you have to do something life throws a curveball and curveballs are different for everybody but I don't think I've met anybody, certainly any autistic person that loves change. Uh, I moved house this year and it was a long distance move. And I I don't even know if that's relevant, to be honest, but it was a long distance move about 170 miles. Okay. And it's taken me, it took me about two months to really settle back in and sort of accept that change. And that was a change that I wanted. I'd actively pursued that and I'd actively manifested that for myself. But still, once it was there and once I was in it, it's sort of this this cycle, this process that you have to go through in order to come out the other side and then go, whew, that was a bit bumpy. I hear you. <laughs> and I, I have to agree because when I when I found out I was autistic and I began to familiarize myself more so with the stereotypes that exist, one of the first things that I became aware of was that autistic individuals despise change. Mm-hmm. And that was not my experience. I've, I've always been very, in fact, change is what motivates me. I, I love change. I welcome it. I seek it out. Yeah. That said, I think I do think I would like for certain aspects of my life to remain stable that kind of lend me the ability to uh, seek out change in other aspects of life. Mm. But I, I agree with your assessment that um, that's one of the ways that I think I might have been defying the stereotypes of autistic individuals. Yeah. And there's a lot of stereotypes and there's a lot of misconceptions. and that is something that through this series, this particular podcast series, and the people that I speak with, I would like to start to just 
pull apart and question it and work out what the truth really is rather than what society and these stereotypes, because these stereotypes, they are born of the research being done on young, white, cisgendered males. And absolutely we, true. we are not that. We are, we are diverse. Everyone's diverse. Even neurotypicals are diverse. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's and I think saying. that the, the other the other reason these stereotypes get perpetuated is because I believe it's very hard for a neurotypical person to understand what neurodivergence truly is. Mm. And so these stereotypes act as guardrails, help place people, behaviors, traits within a box which helps them process that. But that said, I think we are really not, so no two autistic individuals are alike. No, just as no two neurotypical individuals are alike. Mm. And I think that as more and more adults, more and more women come forward, share their stories, that is something that I hope people begin to see that there's no one form of autism. There's no one way to describe what autism is. Mm. In fact, it's, it's these little differences that always exist that are synonymous with being on the spectrum and being neurodivergent. And frankly, neurodivergence also isn't restricted to ASD. Oh no! It's, it's so much more than that. And I mm. think that as more conversations like these are made available to people, more information is out there. That's how we will slowly break down these stereotypes. Absolutely. And by that same token, I think that there is a very strong need for the diagnostic criteria for ASD to be uh, changed. because. Currently, the diagnostic criteria are very inadequate, and it's been set up this way. So if you are, let's say, a high-functioning girl, you are not going to fit that um, diagnostic criteria. No. But that doesn't mean you aren't on the spectrum. What it means is that the diagnostic criteria didn't account for the gender differences in how ASD presents. And I think that's what has led to such a large population of adult women who are self-diagnosing or getting diagnosed late and often um, simultaneous to navigating an autistic burnout. I think a lot of this is preventable if the diagnostic criteria are updated to include these different considerations. Absolutely. I I work with uh, one of our programs works with giving a a consultation. So it's not a thorough assessment. It is an assessment, but it doesn't give you like an NHS approved and it can go onto your medical records. But Mm -hmm. the consultant that I work with, she asks questions that are outside of those tick boxes. So she will say things like, so... How are you actually feeling inside right now? 
And the answer will come back as, I'm really anxious, really anxious. And that's not kind of a neurotypical response. So what would have been a cross in that box is now a tick in that box. So it's about knowing, having that background knowledge and overall how autism presents across the genders. And autism itself, I think it's important to point out, is not gendered. That would be just ridiculous. That's right. It isn't. Yeah. It just tends to be because of the way the medical model works that females tend to get missed males do present in a non-classic way that doesn't tick any tick boxes and females present very classically and can get a diagnosis very early I just think it's important to get that out there and um, yeah but it's it is interesting and it's interesting how some professionals can say well you are successful so of course looking at your your background your career you are a highly successful doctor who has who's gone on to achieve some amazing things in your career so on paper you're too successful to be autistic so when you do have a challenge that comes up and it seems like it's something that's easy People don't take it seriously because you are so successful and in a way kind of almost trips you up. It shouldn't do. It should just be, oh, okay, how can I help you? But people don't see it like that. <laughs> I, I agree. And I think um, I think it, it also comes down to how we define success. I think um, there's a very old school definition of success that most yes. people across cultures, across the globe, just charge forward with. And um, I I don't necessarily believe that that is wrong, but I do believe that that's inadequate. Mm. And again, success can look different for different individuals. Um, And and sure, when you you look at my profile on paper, depending on what you're looking for, you might see success, you might see some challenges, um, but I don't believe that you can get to success without having navigated some challenges. And again, this has nothing to do with really being on the spectrum. I, I think that's that's my um, you know, true belief. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that when people get to know, and again, um, I presented very differently when I was in the middle of an intense autistic burnout. So a lot of my autistic traits were more evident and more pronounced. So at the time, it might have been easier for someone to know I was autistic and buy that. Mm. But again, now, as I have been working on my burnout and, you know, it's no longer an intense situation for me. If and when I share that I'm on the spectrum, it does surprise people. And I think it's it's valuable to share anyway, because one of the reasons I was excited about sharing my story on your podcast is so neurotypical people, but also autistic people who hear this need to understand that being autistic is not a limitation. Absolutely. And even if society doesn't see it that way, even if there's a lot you can do for yourself. Yes. And uh, I'd like to kind of advocate for that kind of an approach. I Too often, autism is 
considered a limitation. Yeah. And I think that's, I don't see how it helps anyone. Um, but I think that that needs to change quickly. And it's it's really important um, for, for this specific change. I think um, my target audience is not neurotypical people. It's autistic individuals because mm. it's very important for um, anyone on the spectrum to not view their autism as a limitation and to know that what they believe about themselves is what will go a long way in um, in every aspect of their life. Yeah. In bringing them success, in opening doors for them, in how they experience life. It's very important for autistic individuals to not view their diagnosis as a limitation. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's, I think that when you get that diagnosis and that understanding, it's almost like being handed the keys to the kingdom because finally you can start to actually move forward and you can just start to open doors that you didn't know were possible for you. Explains the why behind some of the more quirky, eccentric things that you might might, might do. And it's, it's really helpful, but you also don't need to wait for that diagnosis to start moving forward to help yourself. So I think that's also the point in which you was you were saying too. So just to sort of reiterate that, what would you say the biggest sort of takeout for you, the biggest, the, the the best thing that you did for yourself to help you in your recovery from burnout? Um, it was to go with my gut. I think when I was navigating burnout, I was also transitioning careers, starting a graduate level full time program. Um, I attempted to move across the country, live by myself. None of this was necessarily medically approved. <laughs> and frankly, everyone I spoke to, and by everyone, I mean my, my well-wishers, my, my therapist, um, the clinical psychologist who diagnosed me, there simply wasn't adequate evidence to say that what you're doing will work. Yeah. Um, but it was important to me to, to just stick with my gut. And I did a lot of things that I never thought I would learn how to do. But that self-education, going with my gut, and just making sure I get what I need in that moment from uh, a support and a resource and a downtime point of view. I think these were things that collectively helped me move past, uh, you know, the intense burnout. Yeah. And uh, it's now been a fair amount of time that I haven't experienced that kind of burnout. Um, and it's, it's a, I like to remind myself that this isn't a linear path. And that um, it may not always translate to, well, autistic burnout is in, in my past and it will never happen again. Mm. But I think there's a way to ensure that that kind of an intense burnout does not occur again. And that is by educating yourself on how to adapt coping strategies to, to your needs 
mm-hmm. and not ne- again i come back to what you have learned you need versus what you truly need and yeah. i think that for me i've i've always been very self aware of of my needs of what works for me what doesn't um and i've also always been a very open minded individual happy to learn more happy to um allow new information to change my opinion on something my thoughts on something and i think again knowing all of this paying attention to what my own self awareness is telling me i need and mm-hmm. finding a way to creatively provide that for me i think uh, a, a lot of that was just me sticking to my gut and i i do think that without that i i do not believe any amount of external support would have helped me with the autistic burnout yeah that's they say we've got five senses and there's so much more of them and even if we just took those five senses and added in the sixth sense that sense of intuition Absolutely. and just listening to that little voice inside and to start with that voice is small it is meek but when we start paying attention and actioning what what she's or he is saying to us then we actually can start to make movement forward supporting ourselves and then we start to trust ourselves better regardless of what other people because it's other people other people's lives other people's experiences they can mirror ours in certain elements but they will never truly know what it is like to live as you because there is yeah, only exactly. one you and it's your experiences so i think that's an amazing way to kind of navigate it and as you say energy just ebbs and it flows regardless of your your neurotype but we have the extremes as neurodivergent as autistic individuals those are more extremes and we need tools in place we need tools to fall back on so when that energy does start to slide and it could be something as simple as i'm going to clear my diary and i'm going to rest absolutely so it doesn't need to be and it works like a charm every single time i know do you know i offer sort of like a blue light call to my clients so a couple of blue light calls so if you need anything in between our sessions if something goes wrong and you're just ah give me a call well drop me a line and we'll jump onto a zoom and we'll have another chat and it works brilliantly and the only time people ever use it is when they want permission to stop and they can't seem to give themselves permission they need that some sort of outside validation while they're still in that early journey while they're in their infancy and it's always been that and i'm just like you've got two choices you cancel it and you clear what you can now and for the next couple of days you sit in you go and get some food or order it in if it can't go in the microwave to be heated up or in the oven to be really simply cooked then it's just not going to get eaten go and get yourself some chocolate or some crisps or whatever it is while you're out there too and then burrito yourself close it all off burrito yourself or you can continue as you're going you can hit burnout full on and you can take 2 weeks to recover rather than take the 2 days out what would you prefer <laughs> how many of your clients have you needed to present this to quite a few unfortunately okay <laughs> <laughs> quite a few but only ever once because once you okay. kind of do it that one time and you realize do you know what this worked 
And I think once you yes. find that that works, and it works universally, it really does. Uh, I, I often refer to a quote, which is, self-care is giving the world the best of you instead of what's left of you. And it is so important. And you do have permission to stop before you reach burnout. You don't have to charge right into it and hit it head on, head first, and then have to take out a significant time to recover. And it's about learning that. And it is a learning curve. It's part of that journey. Absolutely. And I I think before I experienced autistic burnout, I was absolutely the kind of person who did not give myself permission to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't come from, from a place of, well, I think it did come from a place of self-induced pressure towards productivity. And while I was very personally motivated, and that's what kept me going, um, I have now chosen to reassess and, and you know, just really give my, myself permission to do what I need to do. Good. And sometimes that can be just still charging forward. Sometimes that can be giving yourself some downtime. Yeah. And um, it, it, it definitely has been a journey of learning because um, to go from someone who didn't ex- experience the need to slow down ever for 30 years of my life mm-hmm. and then to navigate autistic burnout and learn that sometimes even when you don't see a glaring need to slow down, periodically slowing down prevents you from ever reaching that situation again. Mm. That has been a very valuable learning for me. Yeah, me too. It is, as I say, some some parts of people's journeys and the autistic experience do overlap and I think that is a very common one and it's one that a lot of autistic people will be sitting and nodding their heads with a little smile just knowing just knowing so we're most certainly not alone with that and it's it's an important part of the process it really is so I would Absolutely love to just say a big thank you for taking the time to speak with me and uh, sharing your your wisdom with the world. I never take it for granted that people also come on and share their valuable time uh, in spreading spreading these important messages. So thank you very much. Thank you, Nikki, for having me on the show. And thank you for for putting out all of these amazing podcasts out there, because I know that this will definitely have an impact. Well, that's the plan. That is absolutely the plan. (laughs) Thank you, Spria. Thank you so much, Nikki. Take care. And for our listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never have to miss an episode again. Thanks for tuning in to...